Father, we thank you for your word. It is so unexpected, so surprising, so not what we would have concocted ourselves, which actually lends itself towards its veracity. It's out of this world, and it is. It's your revelation to us. So we pray that you would communicate it to us this morning by the power of your spirit, somehow working in... uh, my weakness and, and um, me being a, a, an earthen vessel and also working through the congregation and, and their weaknesses and, and deafnesses and, and pray that you would work through all of our weaknesses to communicate the power of your truths this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we considered a, a, a picture, an analogy that I'd like to return to, and that is this. A family, imagine with me that a family who uh, they've lived in this home for a long time, it's their beloved home, they face foreclosure. And in an effort to deal with the, the foreclosure, the looming foreclosure, they, the, the family members take multiple jobs, second and third jobs, to try to, try to make the thing work. But what they don't realize is that hiding up in their attic in a dusty old box with a bunch of junk in it, is a framed picture. And underneath the picture is an original Rembrandt painting valued at $20 million. If the discovery of this painting in their attic, obviously it would save the family home. It would also set the family up for generations. And I believe that this is a, a picture. If you think of the, the house as kind of life as we know it, our public life, we feel, don't we, that it's, it's, that it's at risk of being lost. And the treasure that's hiding in the attic of our public life is Christianity. Christianity is a treasure capable of guiding us, not just individually and privately, but publicly and corporately, as a people, as a culture, all, all these things. Now, here's the thing, though. Think, think, about, think about the box that's in the attic. Unassuming. I mean, that thing, it's a swift trip to the garbage, to the recycle place with that box, right? It's just junk. Christianity presents itself in that same sort of way, humbly. Flesh and blood looks at it and says, there's nothing good there. That's That's goodwill. We're taking that to goodwill. There's nothing of value there. That's that's, That's the way it presents itself. But what Christ has been saying The claim of Christ is this. I am your creator, and I have come to you in humility. I have come to you pouring myself out. I didn't come as a king. I came as a baby in a manger. I didn't just ride into Jerusalem on a war horse. I rode on a donkey. But but, but don't, don't get me wrong. I am the wisdom and power of God in your midst. You're seeing it on display. And the wisdom and power of God is specially designed to make the wisdom and power of the world look foolish and weak. It's specially designed to do that. That's why we look at it and we think, no, there's there's no power in that. There's no wisdom in that. It's folly. But that's, that's the point. That's the design of it. Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, maybe more agnostic, but he's very very zealous in his his rejection of Christianity. He wrote a lot of books in the early 2000s, was very public about this. But he uh, he says this, 
I don't see the Olympian, Olympian gods or Jesus coming down and dying on the cross as worthy of that grandeur of the gods. If there is a God, he doesn't, he doesn't think there is, but if there is, he says, it's going to be a whole lot bigger than that. It's going to be a whole lot more incomprehensible than anything that any theologian of any religion has ever proposed. Richard Dawkins take there's not a God, but if there is a God and he shows up, it's going to be totally different than anything that looks like a, wooden, a, man, a man, God on a cross. Totally different than that. And that's, that's the, Dawkins is saying, I can't conceive, I can't imagine, it's beyond comprehension that God would show up like Jesus did. But that's the point. That's the point, Richard. Jesus came to give us an unexpected picture of who God is because we blinded by the flesh and blinded by flesh and blood can't see it. And here's the thing, there's there's a logic to it. If pride is the fundamental human sin, then it makes perfect sense that God would conquer the world and establish his kingdom through humility. It just makes sense. Now, so where we are in this John story, the, the, Jesus has just capped his public ministry. And he gave his, what we called his last lecture last week. His last public teaching is what he just did last week. Now, the hustle, the bustle, the crowds, the noise is all come down to a hush. And it's Jesus at night with his disciples in a room sharing supper together, eating at table. And also, Jesus is providing teaching. And then he does this, what is, what is a surprising act. And so, as in the foot washing. Now, as we consider this foot washing, it, it, it's going to point to three things that I want us to consider. Three points, again, um, as per usual. Christian conviction. Christian conviction, that's the first point. The second point is Christian conduct, so how we ought to live, Christian conduct. And then the third thing that we're going to consider is a Christian conundrum that we all deal with, and I think this passage is going to help shed light on it. So Christian conviction, Christian conduct, and the Christian conundrum. Those are the three points. So first, the Christian conviction. Uh, let's, I'm going to look again at verse 1. We're, we're, going to, we're going to read some of these verses again. Verse 1, picking it up there. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper... He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He's doing something that would have been um, much needed in in this part of the world at this time, and that is washing feet. It was necessary. I mean, think about it. It's a dusty landscape. 
it's a, it's a pre-modern landscape. There's feces and urine that line the streets. There's all kinds of junk that lines the streets. It's dusty. It's just foot washing was just a, a, a necessary thing. But it was a humble thing. In fact, Hebrew slaves weren't even required to wash another person's feet. It was, it was beneath the Hebrew slave. Gentile slaves, let them do it all day long. But not a Hebrew slave. It's too, it's too much of a dirty job for that, for that. And yet, Jesus puts that aside. He stoops, and he starts washing his disciples' feet. <laughs> Unbelievable. They just, this makes no sense. And what he's doing right here is he's pointing, he's pointing to the gospel. He's giving us a picture, a gospel picture. And look, verse 6. He comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus, I think you're a little confused. You, this is what Peter's saying. Jesus, you know, th- this, is, this is wildly off base. Somebody, Peter's thinking to himself, somebody's got to say something. And so Peter speaks out, says, Jesus, this is, this is way out of line, right? I mean, does the president of the United States clean up after the inauguration, the, the area, the, the, the site? Does Nick Saban clean the bathrooms at Bryant-Denny Stadium following a win? Does Brad Pitt or Steven Spielberg break down the set when the scene's over? Does the college president grade all the term papers? Like, this is, this is ludicrous. The master doesn't wash the disciples' feet. This is what Peter's thinking. This is, this is ludicrous. Somebody's got to say something. And so Peter says, like often he does, he says what he thinks. He just says it. And Jesus answers. Look at verse 7. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you're out of order. You're, out, you're the one that, I'm not out of order. You're the one that's out of order. Now, here, here's the thing, Peter. You're in order with the old world order that is passing away, the old way. But I came to break open, to bust open a new world order. And the new wine that I offer doesn't work under the old scheme. New wine doesn't work in old wineskins. And Peter, you're thinking old wineskins. I'm giving you a new way, a new model. And it has to have a new template. You have to have new wineskins. You have to have a new frame for understanding how my kingdom works. It's hard for, this is really hard for Peter to understand. It's really hard for us to understand. And P- Peter persists. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And it's, it's as em- John, the, the Greek here, is as emphatic as it can be. I'll, I'll translate it. You, Jesus, you, you shall never, ever wash my feet. Never. Now, what's happening here for Peter? I think it's something, I think it's very insightful what's happening. Peter's conscience is in the driver's seat right here. It's guiding and it's directing how Peter relates to the word made flesh. 
And here's the thing. His conscience is not doing a very good job of directing how he ought to relate to his creator, to the word made flesh, to Jesus. Because what his conscience is telling him, what Peter's conscience is telling him is, I must serve the king of creation. I must serve my master. I, the disciple, must serve my rabbi. That's the order. And there, there's a lot to be said about that for that, isn't there? Well, let's listen to what Frederick Bruner says, a commentator. He says, the conscience can be ethically very helpful, as we all know, and its voice should not be muted ethically or morally. But the conscience, if we're, if we're thinking about it theologically, if we're thinking about how it shapes our relationship with God, the conscience is most often devilishly wrong. It should be constantly monitored and subdued by the far deeper gospel, which goes far deeper and speaks far truer than even our innermost voice. Do you hear what he's saying? You, if, 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 I don't know if these cartoons still exist. I know they still exist. I don't know if they're still watched, but the little cartoon character and the little devil pops up on one shoulder and a little angel pops up on another and they're, they're vying for the control of the character. Okay, the devil obviously like, you know, leading the, the character astray, but then there's a the little angel voice, the conscience speaking. You shouldn't do this. not right. You shouldn't. As it relates to how we relate to God, what Brunner is saying is that little angel on our shoulder can actually be a devil in disguise. That it can confuse and distort how, how, we're, how we're to operate. Look, look, look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 8. Let's keep, keep reading. We're going we're gonna to try to I'm kind of work this out here. Verse 8. Jesus answered, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Uh, Bruner translates it like this. If I can't forgive you, you cannot have my presence. Peter, if I can't wash you, if I can't forgive you, you are cut off from life, from truth, from the light, because you're cut off from me. You're cut off from me. So what Peter approaches Jesus, and there's kind of a veneer of humility, isn't there? And Jesus has none of it. None of it. What this little moment here highlights is our own, the humanity's resistance to grace. We don't want grace. We're resistant to it. It's deeply human. If the president is cleaning the arena or whatever, you know, the site for the inauguration, the, the, the chairs and the rows, and the president's pick, getting down and picking up popcorn and all kinds of stuff. Don't you think the White House cleaning staff is going to be a little uneasy about that? What, what is he doing out there? We got to get, we got to stop that. He's not supposed to be doing that. It's, it's an affront to their pride, right? This is my job, not his job. Their conscience, right, is telling them this is out of order. He's our president. We're his cleaning staff. We're supposed to be cleaning this up. That's what the conscience says, and it makes sense, and it's, 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 it, it's good morally, ethically. But as it relates to how we relate to our character, that kind of thinking is off base. Listen again to Frederick Bruner. This is his, um, this is his paraphrase of what Jesus is doing right here. 
If I, Jesus is saying, Peter, if I can't wash you, you can't have me. If I can't be your servant, you can't have my lordship. Forgiveness of sins is the foundation of our relationship, Peter, constantly, constantly, not just at the beginning, constantly. Forgiveness of sins is the basis of our relationship with our creator. If, if you're looking for something outside of that, there will never be a firm foundation or a good relationship with Jesus Christ or with his father. Now, it's hard, Bruner says, it's hard on our pride, but it's medicine for the soul. Right? As it relates to our relationship with our creator, don't listen to your conscience. Listen to the word of Christ. And his word to us is given right here. I must wash you. I must forgive you. That's how this works. Remember Joseph and his brothers following uh, the, the death of their father, the very end of Genesis? Uh, just real quick review. The brothers of Joseph, as many of us remember, um, they, they abuse Joseph. They ponder murdering him, but they sell him as a slave. And down and down his life goes into suffering. He's a slave. He's a prisoner um, because of his brothers. And yet, in God's providence, Joseph is raised to be the, the commander, the, basically the prime minister of Egypt. And there's a famine, and his brothers come, and they need food. They don't recognize that it's Joseph, and Joseph gives them food, and through this elaborate ruse, he, he reveals himself to them, but not to destroy them or to turn them into slaves or to get back at them. Remember what he does? He forgives them. And for 20 years, they lived together in Egypt. But then when dad dies, 20 years after this moment of forgiveness, remember what the brothers think? He, he really didn't forgive. He, he, he's being nice to us because he wants to keep good relations with dad. And now that dad is dead, he is going to unvent, un unleash his, his wrath upon us. And so they make up, they fabricate a story. Hey, Joseph, remember dad? He said something before he died. He, he asked us to promise that, that you to promise us that you would never do anything bad to us. They don't believe, they, 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 here's what they're doing. They're letting their conscience inform their relationship with their brother Joseph, aren't they? Their conscience is speaking, that was wrong, that was wicked. You don't sell your brother as a slave. And that's right. But when your conscience overrides, when the brother's conscience overrides the declared forgiveness of Joseph, remember Joseph declared them forgiven. More than once, he named his oldest son Manasseh, which basically meant, brothers, I forgive you. Like he's given them every indication. They're forgiven, but their conscience keeps saying, that was wrong, that was wrong. There's no way you can be in right relationship. Don't let the conscience override the word of Christ, the promises of Christ in the gospel. Okay, let's, let's go back to verse 9 here in our, in our passage. So Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands, my head, right? Okay, Peter, it's like, okay, I'm starting to get the, kind of getting the logic here. Okay, if that, that's the case, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands, wash my head, wash me all over. In verse 10, Jesus says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash 
except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Peter, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing here. We're going to do this my way. I am declaring you clean as a result of, of this foot washing, this picture that I'm providing. So that is the Christian conviction that we see the first point. The Christian conviction, it is that the king of creation, Christ, must serve you and me, all of us, by washing, by forgiving you, me, all of us, by forgiving us, or we can't have him. We don't get Christ if we don't get his washing, if we don't get his forgiveness. That's Christian conviction. Second point, Christian conduct. Christian conduct. Christ explains... What I am doing to you is a model for how you are to conduct yourselves, for how you are to live. Follow my example. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus is saying, disciples, my path is your path. You will walk in my steps. My work for you becomes your ethic, your code of conduct, the way you ought to live. And here's the thing. This works against every fiber in our being in the flesh, doesn't it? To serve others. This is so difficult for husbands, spouses to serve one another in love, to lay their life down, to get down and wash the feet. Of, the, of, of, of one another, even one who's betrayed, betraying them, which Jesus does here. It's incredible for parents to, to, to lay down their lives, to submit, to serve in love their children, for teachers to serve their students, for, for managers to serve in some way their, their employees. This is what Jesus is prescribing here is radical. It doesn't make sense within the old world, world order. It's new. It's fresh. It's unprecedented. And Jesus is sending out his apostles, his sent ones, to declare the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and that it is built and expands and conquers the world through this kind of humility. That's what he's teaching them to do. You're going to go do likewise. You're going to build my church with this as your MO, as your approach. So this, this is our message, and this is our witness, right? This is, this is Christian conviction right here in a, in a nutshell, in a little picture, the foot washing. But it's also an example. It's our ethic. It's, our, it's the way we ought to live. It's our conduct right here. Now, the final thing that I want us to conclude with is the Christian conundrum. The Christian conundrum. In verse, 
really at the very beginning of our passage in verse 18 and in other places, Jesus keeps alluding to a mole in their midst, Judas. And he he realizes he's there. And now he's going to focus on it here in verses 21. So let's, let's read, pick it up at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled. It's that word again. He's, he's troubled. He's having great difficulty with, with the reality of the, of the situation. And he testifies, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And so the disciples, they look at each other and they're, they're not sure who he's speaking about. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved, this is referring to John, the one who's writing the gospel, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And so Simon, I like this, look at verse 24, Peter. He's, just, he's been put in his place. He can't resist not asking the question. But now he, what is he doing? Peter, he motions over to John, who's next to him. So he gets his attention, and he's, he asks John to say, what, who is he speaking about? And so then John, leaning back against Jesus, asked Jesus the question, Lord, who is it? And so Peter's really asking, but not directly. John's asking the question. And then look at verse 26. Jesus actually answers who it is right there. He says, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after Judas took the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And no one at the table knew why he said this. Some thought maybe because he had the money bag, he was telling him, you get what we need for the feast, or maybe that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Now, there is a Christian conundrum that I think all of us sort of have to reckon with, and that is this. If Christian conviction looks like the foot washing, looks like the master serving the servants, or the rabbi serving the student, if that's what Christian conviction looks like, and if we are supposed to conduct our lives in that kind of manner, how do we deal with the Judases in our midst? How do we deal with those who are grabbing at power or grabbing at money or grabbing to exert their own will in our midst? How can I trust that this is how the new world order is established? You know, maybe you've listened to the podcast of the pastor angling to prop up their own power. You've experienced Christians being mean personally. How how do we make sense? How can Christian conviction and Christian conduct be on point if we've got these Judases in our midst? These people who are wolves in sheep's clothing? The conundrum's happening right here in this room, in, in, in the room where Jesus is. So what do we do with the Judas in our midst? It's very sobering. It's a very sobering question, isn't it? I mean, Judas is... Judas is in church. He's at the table with the Lord, fellowshipping. He's one of the disciples. And get this, the disciples have no idea who Jesus is talking about. There's no sign that Judas has this in his heart to them. They they don't see it. 
at all. It's a sobering thought. What if we're Judas? Don't let the behavior of the followers of Jesus inform your understanding of Jesus himself. Don't let the behavior of the followers of Jesus distort who Jesus is. Whether the pastor has a failure or the Christian at the small group is mean, Jesus is still Lord. He still reigns. His kingdom still comes in weakness. And look, we we get that here. Even here, we see that Jesus reigns. Look at this. Look at verse 27 again. So, so, So Jesus takes the morsel, he dips it, he gives it to Judas, and when he gives it to Judas, it says that Satan enters him, which is to say that Satan takes Satan takes control of Judas. Satan possesses Judas. Satan is is orchestrated. He's the puppet master of Judas, right? Not quite. Keep reading. Then Jesus said to him, then Jesus gives him a command, what you are going to do, do quickly. And then look at the very, look at verse 30. And so Judas, what does he do? Immediately he goes, quickly, just as Jesus commanded, because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over Judas. Jesus is Lord over Satan. Remember, this is not weakness being displayed. It's meekness. And it's how the kingdom comes. Jesus is in full control of this situation over Satan, over Judas. And, and look, look, at, look at the last, the very end of this passage here. It says it was night. Remember, John Scott, John's making a big deal out of night and day, night and day. Remember Nicodemus coming to Jesus confused by night, and he kind of left confused in a haze, not quite sure what was going on. The, the Samaritan woman, on the other hand, when does she meet Jesus? Broad daylight. And, and here it is, night. Judas feels as though he's got kind of a commanding position. He's got inside information. He's got a plan that nobody knows about, so he's kind of in control of this situation. He thinks, but he's not. He's in the dark. It's night. That's what John is saying by saying it's night. He's going out into the dark because he is moving away from Christ, who is the light. And, he, and it doesn't end well for Judas. For all of Christians' failures, the, the question we have to come back to is, who is the Lord? And when you answer that question, you come back to a Lord who is stooped, half-dressed, cleaning feet. You come back to a Lord who is bleeding upon a tree in just hours. It's just, just 24 hours away from the crucifixion on this night. And, and, and that's, that's who you come back to. You come, out, you come back to this. Christ raised in glory. See, again, flesh and blood doesn't, this doesn't make sense. If, if, you, if you see the beauty of this, of God's scheme, I, I would venture to say that you're not Judas, that, that the Spirit has opened your eyes to what only the Spirit can open your eyes to. Flesh and blood doesn't see this. Remember Richard Dawkins? I can't, I can't imagine a God that lands on a tree and dies. That's, that doesn't make sense. If God's going to come, it's going to be sweeping. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be big, is what Richard Dawkins thinks. Listen to Leslie Newbegin. He's not responding to Dawkins, but he could be, because they, they, 
The quote came after Newbegin actually died. But listen to what Leslie Newbegin says. The natural man makes gods in his own image. And of course, if we're making gods in our own little image, idolatry, what, what, what are we going to do for the supreme God, the big God? He is going to be the one who stands at the summit of the chain of command, right? That's where the God, that's where God, big God is. How can the natural man recognize the supreme God in the stooping figure of a slave clad only in loincloth? How can we see God in that? Only by the Spirit. That's how. It all points to the cross. All of this is pointing to the cross. And we get echoes of it here, even here in this passage. He's giving them a picture. He says, right? You don't understand it now, but you will afterward. And, but you get close to it. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What does that mean? He loved them all the way to the end of his life? Sort of, it can mean that. But really what, it, what it's saying is this. He loved them completely. He loved them to the max. He loved them all the way. As far as a person, as far as infinite God can love, that's how far he loved them. All the way to the end. And then you see in verse 4 this language of Jesus laying aside his garments, taking off his clothes, humbly. And it echoes the, his great sermon in John chapter 10. The great shepherd lays down, lays aside his life for the sheep. That's what he's giving. A picture of him laying his life down for, for his people. A 5th century Syrian minister, when preaching on this very sermon right here, this very text, said this, He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped around himself a towel. He who pours water into the rivers and pools poured water into a basin. And he before whom every knee bends in heaven and on earth and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. This is your creator. This is, this is, this is what he does. It, his, his arrival and his power and his wisdom come in the most unexpected way so as to crush the powers of this age. In just hours, like we said, he's going to be dying upon a cross, atoning for human sin, but acquiring our salvation. And not just that. He will be destroying the powers of this age, destroying the rulers and the principalities of darkness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your arrival, your salvation. We thank you that you made, so clearly, made it so clear to us that we bring nothing to you but need and dirt and filth. And the only way we can have you is for you first to wash us clean, to forgive us. I pray for those who might be here who have never had, who have never been washed by you. Maybe they've never turned to you for salvation. They've been like, Peter, I don't need you. I just need to keep coming to church. I don't, I don't need you. I just need to keep being a good husband or being a good wife or being a good worker. Father, strip us of that. Help us to see our need of you and and to go and do likewise, that you would help us to live as you lived, pouring ourselves out for others so as to give witness to the power of your kingdom. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.